Okay. God, our Father, Lord, we are so grateful for all that you are to us, Lord. Lord, your sovereignty and your kingdom are awesome. And we do praise you, Lord. We do lift you up and exalt you and give you glory. And Father, we are just reminded today of the fact that you are in heaven. And that, Lord, you are not worried. You're not shaken. For indeed, you control everything, oh God. You are the great king who rules over the earth. And you do as you please with the heavens above and with the earth below. And we do thank you for that, Lord. Father, we want to thank you that you have called us and chosen us and set your love upon us and made us to be your children and lavished your great love and the surpassing riches of your grace upon us. Father, we are so thankful. Lord, help us to comprehend the tremendous love that you have poured out on us. Help us to comprehend the tremendous resources that we have in Christ to be like you, Lord. Father, we ask that you would give us strength, Lord, each week as we come and we look so intensely at your word. We discuss what you have said to us. I pray, Father, that you would give us strength, strength to surrender to your will in our lives, strength to acknowledge your lordship, O God, and to put the flesh to death and to let the new man live and reign in our hearts and in our minds and in all that we say and do. Lord, we um, are just uh, filled with gratitude for all that you are doing in us. We are thankful. We praise you. We thank you for the freedom that we have to gather in this place and to worship you this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So then, we are uh, back in our ongoing study of the book of Ephesians, and we have arrived at uh, chapter 4, and uh, today we're going to be looking at verses 4 and following. I'm going to go ahead and and read (coughs) uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, 
according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Amen? So, again, we are back in this just extremely rich passage of of, uh, the Bible. And we have uh, recently been discussing chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And, And there we were discussing the calling of God. And we were discussing... Um, what what we would refer to as the lowly walk. And Paul calls us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And then he describes what that is like. And he says, <clears throat> with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. And <clears throat> you know, we talked about these virtues and how important that these virtues were to Christian unity, and uh, you know that, and the chief virtue there being humility, and uh, and having that lowliness of mind, that that uh, that uh, perspective of others that esteems others more highly than itself, and how this humility is in contrast to to uh, pride, which is what naturally lives in our sinful nature, and um, and then just just how important it was. To have these virtues of humility and gentleness and patience and forbearing love if we're going to have unity in the body of Christ. We have got to be willing to humble ourselves before God and before one another. And we have got to be willing to have patience with one another. You know, if, if, if we as Christians are, are being saved from our carnal uh, lives of depravity and we're coming into the church... And we've got all this baggage of our lives and, and, and the church is to be a mother to us and to nurture us in and, and the righteousness of God. We're going to have to have some patience for one another. Amen? Because we come into the church and we got all kinds of problems. And we have all kinds of, of issues because we walk in the flesh and we manifest the flesh. And the flesh, by nature, causes division and dissension and factions and causes pain and destruction, and when, and when we're when we're angry and we're full of strife and, and and this kind of thing, bitterness and resentment, we we have very difficult time being unified. We have a very difficult time being one body in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a very difficult time being that holy temple of peace where God lives by His Spirit. And so, it's important for us then to be able to have this humility and this meekness, and this patience, and this forbearing love one for another. Amen? How vital that is to unity within the body of Christ. Amen? And so, he then goes on and says that we should be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, and that we are to be striving to have this unity in the body of Christ. And, and so, friends, you know, one thing that, that should really catch our eye is, is when we begin to have strife and, di- and division among one another, we need to come back to this passage of text. And we need to seek the Lord for humility and for patience and for forbearing love and for gentleness so that we can relate to one another and so that we can strive to have that unity. How, how are you going to strive to have that unity? You're going to surrender. You're going to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so that in all the relationships that we have together, there is this mutual submission. And not, not, not to say, that, like we discussed last week, that we're going to lie down and become a doormat for everyone to trample over us. For that's not what meekness is, right? Meekness is... To have power which is restrained and is, is exercised with wisdom, right? But, it, but in, in this context here, it is to, to esteem others more highly than yourself within the body of Christ. And to strive to have that unity of, of the Spirit, which is what? In the bond of peace, right? Not in the flashing swords of strife. Amen? So this is going to take some work. <laughs> We're going to have to be 
diligent at this. We're going to have to make every effort to have to, to keep this unity which we already have, right? And why is it that we already have this unity? Why is he saying make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit? Because we already have the Spirit of God living within us. Amen? And the Spirit of God is, is one Spirit, right? And he's not confused about his will for our lives, is he? So then if that same Spirit is in us, then we shouldn't be confused about his will for our lives. But because the flesh gets in the way, right, we have these struggles, and it's going to take some work. It's going to take some diligence. It's going to take some effort on our part to keep this unity of the Spirit that we have in the bond of peace. Amen? And that work here in this uh, context is a work of lowliness. It's a work of surrender. It's a work of submission. It's a work of forbearance and having patience with one another. It's a work of putting the flesh to death so that the, the, the fruit of the Spirit of God can live and be manifested within us. Amen? You know, if you don't put the flesh to death, the flesh rises up and it wants to have strife and it wants to have division and it wants to have dissension and it wants to have anger and cause pain. But we did not learn Christ that way. Amen? Amen. We learned Christ to put off the flesh, to live in repentance, to live in forgiveness and in forbearing love for one another. Amen? That's who we are in the body of Christ. And this is the attitude of our hearts when it comes to how we treat one another. We treat one another in all lowliness and meekness and patience. Amen? It's not to say that we're not fortified by the truth. It's not to say that, that we don't take a stand for what is right and what is godly and what is true and what is noble and what is good. We do do that. But we do it with humility. And we do it with patience. And we do it with forbearing love. Amen? That's who we are to be. That is how we are to be if the Spirit of God lives in us. Amen? I'm reminded of this passage in Colossians. I've been trying to get my family to memorize this text of, of uh, Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14. So I, I got on my computer and I printed out these verses and I, I made these little cards that stand up on their own. They got the Word of God on them. And so I put them all over the house. I made a set for every member of the family so they could put them in their own room or in their bathroom or wherever they are. So that they can read this again and again and again and again and again. Until this becomes the pattern by which we think when we relate to one another. Colossians 3, 12-14, it says, And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. And whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Amen? And here is how we, in the, as fellow members of the body of Christ, are to treat one another with compassion and with kindness and with humility and with meekness and with patience. Amen? And we don't measure ourselves against ourselves. We're not like we were when we were teenagers growing up and said, well, look what they're doing. And you want me to do this, but what about them? Right? We don't compare ourselves with ourselves. Who do we compare ourselves with? Christ. Christ is the measure that we compare ourselves to. Amen? And if we continue to do that, friends, we're going to be built up. And we're going to grow up. And we're going to learn how to treat one another with compassion and humility and kindness. Amen? If we keep measuring ourselves by Christ, we always have more room to grow, Amen. don't we? Amen? We're going to talk more about that when we get to verses uh, 11 through 13 there. 
Okay, so then, uh, taking off here at verse 4 and following, it reads, verse 4 and 5, There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, you remember I told you that the book of Ephesians, kind of generally speaking, was... I'm sorry, the, the chapter, chapter 4 of Ephesians was kind of broken into two parts. And the first part, uh, verses 1 through 16, you could break that part into two parts. And, and those two parts are the unity of the body and the maturity of the body. And so you see the unity of the body in verses 1 through 6, and you see... Um, you see the uh, uh, maturity of the body in verses 7 through 16, okay? And then, of course, in the, in the latter half of, of the chapter, he begins this really practical dis- description of the former life and the new life and putting the flesh to death and living in the spirit. And, and he begins to draw this contrast of the old man and the new man in, in the latter half of chapter 4. But in the, in the first part of chapter 4, he's talking about unity within the body of Christ. And he's talking about how we interrelate to one another. And, and he's, he's, he's ta- talking to us about having this gentleness and this humility and this meekness uh, with one another. And then he goes in and he says, because, basically, he is describing why we have this unity. And here it is right here. Because there is one body and one spirit and one hope of our calling and one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father of us all. Okay? We have unity in all of these principal elements of, of Christ. Okay? And so he lays them right out for us and he, he breaks it down into these different elements uh, uh, and, and points out specifically what we have unity in. Here Paul describes our unity, pointing out the many facets of it. It's like if you were looking at a diamond and you called that diamond unity. And as you kind of twisted that diamond around, you would see all these little different aspects of Christian unity. Okay, And here's what they are. He goes on to say, Each of these points of unity are shared by every true Christian. It is therefore these things which our common bond of being united together in them. Okay? Every true Christian has this testimony of unity within their own heart. And if the Spirit of God lives inside you, then He testifies to the truth of each one of these points of unity. Okay? And He starts and He says, One body. We are all members of of the one body of Christ united together by our salvation, which was purchased by Christ. We are members together in the family of God. Okay? You know, we as Christians are one body of people. When we came to Christ, we became a member of the family of God. We became a member of the body of Christ, who, who is described in the New Testament as the church. Right? And, and we talked about the meaning of the word church. Can anybody remember what it means? The called out ones. Okay? The church is the called out ones. We have been called out of darkness. And now we are light in the Lord. And we are one body together. Right? I want, if you will, turn, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And I want you to see the contrast that that the Apostle Paul describes for the Christian. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And there in, in verse 14 he says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Okay? So he draws a contrast, right? And he says, for the Christian, you are not to be what? Bound together with unbelievers. You are not to have a common yoke of fellowship with unbelievers. 
And he makes a contrast. And he sa- what does he say there? He says, For what partnership have what? Righteousness, which is the virtue of who? The believer. And lawlessness, which is the non-virtue of who? The unbeliever. Okay? He's drawing a contrast. What does he say? What fellowship has light with darkness? Or in, right in this context, what fellowship does a believer have with an unbeliever? Now, they're certainly not united together as one member in the body of Christ. They are instead what? Outside of the body of Christ. And they are what? Without God and without hope in the world. Dead in their transgressions and sins. Walking according to what? The prince of the power of the air. And indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And Christians don't have a common bond of unity with unbelievers. Why? Because our whole reason and purpose for existing is 180 degrees from theirs. They, they live for self. They live to indulge the flesh. But you did not learn Christ that way. Amen? And I want to tell you, there is no fellowship between light and darkness. You ever gone into a dark room? It's pitch dark. You turn on the light, what happens? The darkness flees. They don't, the two don't coexist. Okay? Now, of course, we know it's not to say that we Christians do not have relationships with unbelievers. Of course we do, in the proper context, okay? And, and there's much that could be said about that. But we need to understand, when we talk about Christian unity, the Christians, the family of God, have a unity in being members of the family and the, and the body of Christ that excludes anyone else. And because the unbeliever is excluded, the believers then have a unity within that body. Okay? Friends, we're different people. We've been called out of darkness into light. The Holy Spirit has come to live inside of us and has transformed our being. The Holy Spirit of God lives within our souls. Amen? And so what does Paul go on to say? He says, or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are all the temple of the living God. Just as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Is he really your God? Does he really walk among you? He doesn't have fellowship with the temple of idols. He abhors it. Amen? Amen. And there is a great contrast between light and darkness. And you are a very different person if you have come to Christ than you once were. And you're no longer dead in your trespasses and sins and following after the prince of the power of the air. And you're no longer indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind And you're no longer without Christ and without hope in the world. You're no longer an object of God's wrath. You're someone very different. So what does the apostle say? Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters says the Lord Almighty. Amen? We are members of the holy body of Christ, His holy church, whom He died for. Okay? And we have a unity together. We do not have a yoking together with unbelievers, but we have a deep, intimate yoking together with the fellow members of the body of Christ. Amen? Seems like that's kind of a fearful thing to talk about or something. 
or everybody's wondering, am I suggesting we go move up into the mountains and become a commune? (laughs) Well, I'm just reading right out of 2 Corinthians 6 here. And I'm not trying to imply that you go around and bust people over the head with a Bible and go become some separatist and live in a cave somewhere. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that you do have a true identity as a member of the family of God and that you are in, have a complete and absolute unity with the members of the body of Christ because the Spirit of God lives within you. And that unity is something which is in stark contrast with unbelievers. Dave? I think a lot of times, a lot of our frustration comes because we try to seek acceptance from the world. And not so much like to prove our strength or prove our knowledge, but also like to prove our, our quote-unquote social status or educational status or whatever like that. In all these area aspects of life, we subliminally, sometimes noticeably, to try to seek acceptance, and I think that's what a lot of our frustration comes from. And I think this passage is saying, you know, don't waste your time doing that. You already have your identification tied into your brother in Christ and mm-hmm. tied into what Jesus wants us to be. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to go out there and reinvent ourselves out in the world and then reinvent ourselves here in the church. We already, it's already been determined what, who we are. Mm-hmm. And we don't have to, like, live a certain way or do a certain thing in the world's eyes. Amen. And we have an identity, don't we? We have an identity which is foreign to ourselves. Amen? It's an identity that was granted to us in Christ Jesus. And in that identity, we have a perfect unity. Okay? And and again, I'm I'm not saying this to, to try and cause us to be proud or to somehow look down on unbelievers. That's not my point. My point is to point out the contrast between the fellowship that we have as as the members of the body of Christ and that that is an exclusive membership okay and in that exclusive membership we have a unity in Christ Jesus okay so we don't no longer within the body of Christ act like we did when we were heathens who are hating one another and envying one another and jealous about one another and always having strife. That's been going on since man has been on the earth. You know what man does to his brother? He kills him. He kills his brother because he's jealous. I'm thinking of Cain and Abel, which, if you will, symbolize. Cain symbolizes a sinful man. Right? And and that's that's how the heathen live. Why do you think there's wars and rumors of wars? Why do you turn on the evening news and all you see is bodies being blown up, people being hacked to death with machetes? Because that's what goes on in this world. Because men live after the flesh. They are not approved by God. They are objects of his wrath. And for these things the wrath of God is coming. Amen? But we, friends, have been called out of that and called into the kingdom of God's dear Son, into the kingdom of light and of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Amen? And we have a unity in that calling. We've been called out of that darkness, and now we are one body together. Amen? A body that treats one another with humility and kindness and compassion and forbearing love. Amen? He goes on, One Spirit. We are all united by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Every true Christian is the temple of God and united with all other Christians, having been born again by the Holy Spirit, by whom we receive the very nature and life of God within our souls. I was reading an interesting article yesterday where the guy was talking about half-born Christians. And uh, he, 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 was a, um, he was a creation scientist, and he was, he was you know, discussing the fact that we have a lot of evangelical Christians running around preaching the true gospel of, of, 
of, of, of Christ, <coughs> preaching the deity of Christ and, and Christ's sacrificial atonement on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And, and, uh, and, and yet that whole group of, or not that whole group, but a, a large majority of them, uh, you know, cease to believe in the book of Genesis and take, take these things literally about God. And he was, his argument was, you know, we have these Christians that are being half-born because they're not taught to diligently study the scriptures. And they're not taught to have a literal interpretation of the scripture and all kinds of things he was saying. And I, you know, I, I kind of thought about that and I thought, well, I suppose it's true that people can get saved and then live in ignorance because they're, they're sitting under a very shallow teaching. I know that for a fact because it happened to me. And I suppose that's the case with all Christians. We get saved and we are, we're utterly carnal. And, and from there, through the sanctification process, God begins to transform our thinking and he begins to transform our, our mind and he begins to transform our understanding as we grow in the, in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're all going from this state of utter carnality and, and ignorance and depravity to, to a, an ever more increasing state of knowledge and enlightenment in the reality of the true reality of the universe. And, uh, <clears throat> but but uh, as I began to consider that thought, half-born Christian, and then I began to apply that to the understanding of salvation, can a Christian truly be half-born? Why not? You're either born again or you're not born again. And if you are born again, what has happened? You're a new creature. You're regenerate. You're transformed. And what? The Spirit of God has come to reside inside your soul. Whose very nature, He has life in Himself. And he has resurrected you from your dead state. And you are now among the living. And you shall never die, said the Lord Jesus. Amen? He who believes in me has passed from death unto life. Amen? He said... I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? That's what he said. Amen? And you see, here's this thing. The Spirit of God has come to live inside every true Christian. And that Christian now has the very nature and life of God within himself. It is utterly foolish to think that someone could lose their salvation. That statement is ignorance of what salvation is. Salvation by its very nature is eternal because the nature of the eternal God comes to live inside the soul of man. Amen? So you can't be unborn. Not only that, you can't be half-born. <laughs> Okay, now you might be born again, and you might be uh, lacking greatly in the, in the maturing process for many different reasons, okay? But if you're born again, the Spirit of God lives inside your soul, and you have become a child of God. And you now belong to Him, and He is the Good Shepherd, and He shall lose none of all that the Father has given me. Amen? Amen? You're his sheep. And Jesus don't lose his sheep. Amen? I'm sorry. I don't mean to be on the eternal security soapbox this morning. <laughs> I guess I do. Maybe I shouldn't apologize either. If salvation was an act of man, then yeah, you could lose it. But since salvation is an act of God and a work of God, it's complete. Amen. He sees to the finalization of it. It's his job to keep us saved. Therefore, we're always saved. Amen. Praise the Lord. He goes on. One hope of your calling. Okay? We're talking about this unity. We have unity in the fact that we're all members together in one body. We have unity in the fact that the Spirit of God has come to live in each one of our hearts. 
and that we have become the temple of God now, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And now we have unity in the fact that we all have the same hope. Right? We're no longer without God and without hope in the world. Right? But now we have hope. And what is it that we all hope together for? Several things. We are all united by the hope which we have of our internal existence in heaven with God. I think first and foremost, we all hope to get beyond the grave. Amen? And to no longer be subject to the destructive effects of sin. Amen? But what about this? We all hope in the benefits of future grace which God will grant to us in facing all the trials and sufferings of this life. Or did you know that even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that you don't have to fear evil? For God is with you. And His rod and His staff will be there to comfort you. Christians, we have hope that God is going to show us grace tomorrow, just like He did yesterday, just like He's doing today. Amen? He's not going to leave us or forsake us because we belong to Him. We are His own. We are His very people. And let me tell you something. God cares for His people. Amen? Amen. Because of Christ. Not because we're good. Because Christ is good. And we are in Him. Amen? It's all by the merit of Christ. We are united together in the hope of our being transformed into the perfect likeness of Christ. I don't know about you, but I have this great desire that one day I'm going to be like Jesus. And one day I am going to treat the people I love with compassion and humility and meekness. And I am going to give my life to love them and sacrifice everything I have for their benefit. And I'm going to be kind and patient and full of good fruit and forbearing love, and self-control. And I am going to be faithful, because he who began a good work in me is going to be faithful to complete it. And that work that God is doing in us by the Holy Spirit is one day going to find its utter and complete uh, fulfillment at the resurrection, friend. And we are going to be made like him. Even physically, we are going to receive a body which is made like unto his glorious body. And there's coming a day when we are never, ever, ever again going to be subject to the destructive effects of sin. We're going to be able to love one another with a pure, godly love that's not hinged or affected by anything. And there won't be any more crying or dying or pain. For the old order of things will pass away. And there'll be no more mourning and no more death. Because we're going to be transformed. If you hadn't figured it out, we're the problem. <laughs> right? Why can't we get along? Because we can't get along. Right? But there's coming a day for the Christian, when he is going to be changed. Right? Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. And this mortal will put on immortality. And this perishable will put on the imperishable. Amen? You understand that? You are going to be immortal what the Bible says. Immortal. It's already begun if you're a Christian. 
Amen? You wonder why you're having so many struggles in this body of sin? It's because holy God lives inside you. Amen? And it's probably turning your life upside down. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. <laughs> hey, Sean. Yeah, Dave. I was, you know, I, I'm a big like reader of Ecclesiastes. Like I read it so many times, and uh, I, I just like encourage everybody like to read that book. And it has a lot to what you're talking about today, mm-hmm. and you know, just about the futility of this world. Mm-hmm. One last thing. One thing that I always ask myself when I find myself, you know, not being, not showing signs of the Spirit and my fruits, is that why wouldn't I want it? this way? Like, what am I trying to accomplish by being prideful? What am I trying to accomplish by being self-sufficient and, and everything? Um, you know, what, what am I trying to gain from these people's acceptance or this world's acceptance? Mm-hmm. And Amen. I think it has a lot. Like, I, think, I can't know the first word for word but when Jesus says, like, you know, what good is a man who wins the whole world, but he you know, loses his soul. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think tying all that into Ecclesiastes and what you're saying, I think that's a good study. Mm-hmm. It's interesting when you when you find yourself in your sense and you realize how silly and ridiculous it really is, <laughs> and how it, it's not bringing anything to you but destructive fruit. You, you're not going to bear any good thing from sin. Sin does nothing but bring destruction. It robs. It steals. It kills. It destroys. You know, and I, I think at times we are so miserable in our sin. <laughs> it just, it just, uh, it's shocking at times, and it's very mysterious when you begin to consider it. Why would I want to be full of anger? Why would I want to be having all this strife with these people in my life? You know, well, I mean, when we finally begin to ask ourselves the hard questions about the reasons why we behave the way we behave. It's futile. It's fruitless. It's foolish. Right? And, and that's why we as Christians have got to begin to think with the mind of Christ. We've got to assess our circumstances and our behavior with the wisdom of God. Otherwise, we're just like the Gentiles walking in the futility of their thinking. And then with the ignorance that's in them, their hearts have become calloused and hard. And they just keep living for self more and more and more. And so, you know what? Self never gets enough. Self never gets enough. Right? Amen. How foolish. Like said last week when that wise woman raised her hand, the way of sin, that's what's hard. Amen. It's just so hard. Amen. Amen. I don't want to sound like too pessimistic or anything, but that's one thing that crosses my mind. Every time I see like a famous person die, I go, oh, he died too, or she died too. Oh, it didn't matter that they wrote these books or they're, you know, this person on TV or this person in the movies, or they thought they were going to just live forever. They died too. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's not even so much the, the, the really darkened sins. It's also the sins just, you know, thinking about yourself and just, you know, thinking about your future in this world, like planning ahead and, and think, oh, you know, someday we'll go buy this house up here, you know, when we retire, or someday we'll go do this, or someday we'll do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just even those kinds of things, too. It's just focusing Amen. on anything that has nothing to do with God and your relationship. Uh, yeah, we, we get caught away with all kinds of fancy dreams as humans, don't we? <coughs> one, one day, it's all, you know, I'm going to have a big white house on the hill, a nice soft couch, and money in the bank, and I'll just retire. Right? Not thinking for one moment that you're going to die of your last disease. (laughs) Right? And that death is going to overcome us just like it has every other man who ever lived. The death rate is one per person. And then what are we going to do? You, you, You can't bring your house on the hill and your nice cozy couch and your bank account with you to heaven. But you can come by repentance and faith. And you can have the surpassing riches of God's grace poured out in you in kindness in Christ Jesus in the coming ages, world without end. Amen? Jerry? I was going to say, whenever I see somebody famous, especially a movie star, you know, like for instance, uh, they'll show Johnny Carson in his last days and he's like... And then, you know, they'll show him in his heyday, and he's like, 
Mm-hmm. And it always kind of reminds me that when we get to heaven, we're going to be made into our heyday. That, you know, we're going to wither and fade away ourselves, but when we are resurrected and given our glorified bodies, you know, we're not going to be overweight. We're, we're, we're going to be perfect. Amen. And I just always think about that when I see the old withered man passing away and they show him in his heyday in a movie and he's handsome and chiseled. And I just think, man, that awaits us. Amen. We're going to be made perfect. For the Christian now, we humble ourselves so that the Lord might lift us up in due time. Not like the world exalting themselves so that in due time they will be humbled. You know who strikes me like that is Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali, man, he used to bounce around, and he was the most boastful, proud man I have ever seen spewing things out of his mouth in all my life. You know what he used to say? I am the greatest. The greatest. I'm the baddest dude. I got the most hair on my arms, man. I can smoke anybody, right? Look at him now. Now, it's Parkinson's disease or something like that. And man, I mean, he can't even go to the bathroom by himself. What, 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 what happened to the greatest? What, what happened to all that exalting pride who was, who was lifting himself up? Rosie, you were going to say something? It was just a little thing. It says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And Amen. What kind of legacy did you leave? What, what did you do for the kingdom? Amen. And how soon it's coming. Amen. Daniel? Well, you know, Muhammad Ali is a very interesting example in that I remember watching this interview of him from years when his his heyday, and the thing was he was making fun of George Foreman, you know, and he was mocking him essentially and like that. Now now you look at them now and there's George. He's got full use of his faculties. I I understand he's a preacher. I've never listened to him. And uh, and there's Ali, you know, tremble trembles like a leaf all the time now, you know, and 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 such and. Uh, very interesting contrast in that, in that life. Mm-hmm. Wow. I tell you, this life is fleeting, isn't it? Sure. Carlos? Uh, I just read a little article in the paper. <coughs> it was about Muhammad Ali. And I guess it's an example of how the world still clings to him. Because he was driving through a McDonald's. I don't know if anybody read this article. It's still thing in the paper. And there was, uh, I guess, a young boy that saw him. And he says, that's Muhammad Ali, you know, he's the greatest. And he thought Muhammad was the coolest guy because he's the, I guess, the most well-known athlete in the world. Mm. So the world still clings to those kinds of things. So, you know, we can look at it as Christians and we know that, you know, he might have his Parkinson's or he might just be healthy right now. But it doesn't matter because we know the Lord Jesus Christ and we know that and what unifies us as Christians is is we have hope the hope of eternal life and the hope of being transformed into being like Christ and putting on immortality we are unified in that hope together and you know what is an unbeliever in the world that has that hope and doesn't know that hope like you know that hope Because the Spirit of God has come in and given you knowledge of that hope that you have beyond the grave. Amen? Friends, you're unified with all of the Christians in that hope of eternal life. Amen? You know, he also says, one Lord. Now, how are Christians unified together here? We have one Lord. Which is to emphasize what? Lordship, sovereignty, kingship, right? Obedience of servanthood. (laughs) Amen. What's he mean when he says one Lord? We are all united in our submission to the Lord Jesus as our master and king. By his power, we voluntarily submit our wills to him for obedience and recognize his commandments and good word as authoritative and to be fully adhered to. Amen? We have come to Jesus who is our Lord. 
Amen? Because he is the Lord. Amen? Every true Christian has this witness in himself or herself. Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, No one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Amen? The true confession of lordship comes by divine empowerment. Amen? Then he says, One faith... Here he talks about the Christian faith as a whole. And he uses a word that describes the, the embodiment of Christian teaching. So we are all unified together in what? In one faith. We have like what? Beliefs, convictions about what? About the person and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are all united in, in, in the knowledge of the Christian faith. We are all united in the belief of Christ's deity and teachings, the teachings of the apostles, and also in the common conviction of agreement with the whole counsel of God expressed in his word, the Bible. The nature of this faith is the same in every true Christian. Let me tell you something. Every true Christian knows that this is the word of God. And if you're sitting down talking to somebody... And they're sitting there telling you, I don't know about that Bible. There's some funny things in that Bible. Or the Bible's full of contradictions. Or they have all these interesting ways that they will try to discredit the veracity of Scripture. Right? And yet at the same time, profess to be a Christian? Friends, that is not the testimony of the Spirit of God. Amen? Every true Christian has this witness in himself. What? The witness of the truth which is revealed in Holy Scripture. Amen? Is there any doubt in your mind that these are the words of God? No. I mean, when you open that book and they just pierce you right down to the center of your soul. Amen? Is there any doubt in your heart and mind that this is the Word of God? Neither is there in the heart of every true Christian. Why? Because the spirit of truth lives in there. And he is guiding us into all truth. Amen? We are united in the one faith. Charlotte? An example of that it's not the Bible, it's God working through the Bible. I was just in California, I read this big article about this uh, homosexual couple who, they have a, it's two men, and they have a daughter who's three or four years old. And one of them takes their daughter, to, they go to church at a Methodist church and he and his daughter go to Bible study every week. I mean, it just, it's like, you know, you just throw up your hands like, what in the world? How can you take this Bible mm-hmm. and have that lifestyle in a church? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I can see a group of homosexual people figuring out, you know, they're going to take this and that out of the Bible and and live according to the other virtues, but I can't see a church Shocking. teaching. <laughs> it just, uh, it just, Shocking. It's just amazing. It's been going on for many years. <coughs> Long as there's been a church, that's been going on. But every true Christian is united in the body of teaching, which is the Christian gospel. And there is a unity that we have in the truth. Amen? Marietta? Can we say that that goes on because we have a greater fear of man than, a, than the fear that we have for God? Sure. I, mean, we're, we're I would say, yeah, the beginning of, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? Amen. And where there is no fear of God, mankind will justify his sin every, every way he can figure out. It can paint it in a pretty picture and come up with all kinds of deceitful scheming and trickery of men to try and deceive many and draw away disciples after themselves and justify their lifestyles of sin and redefine who God is. Well, man's been doing that forever. It's called idolatry. And instead of worshiping the one true and living God for who he is, I am who I am, what man does is takes a piece of wood out of the 
out of the forest and hammers some gold on it and crafts it into an image he expects God to be and bows down to worship it and says, this is my God, right? Then he throws the rest in the fire and cooks his food and says, aha, I'm warm. And my food is cooked. Thus the foolishness of idolatry and crafting God into our own image. Amen? He says then also we have one baptism. We are all united in the fact that we received Christ publicly by identifying with him in his death, burial, and resurrection in the ordinance of baptism. I want to read that again. I want you to hear this. We are all united in the fact that we all received Christ publicly by identifying with him in his death, burial, and resurrection in the ordinance of baptism. Okay? Every true Christian, every true Christian has been publicly baptized to give profession of their faith. Terry? You take that as water baptism rather than the baptism of the Spirit in the first place. I take them as synonymous. Yeah. He, Terry's asking, is this water baptism or is this baptism of the Holy Spirit? And, and in my mind, the two are one in this passage. When we talk about the unity of Christians, that uh, the, the unity that we have as Christians, we have in the baptism. And what is the baptism? The baptism is the outward sign of the inward work that's been done, that's been wrought by God, by the Holy Spirit. And and we have identified publicly together as Christians. That That is our outward profession of the faith that exists within us. And that's why in the New Testament, when the uh, apostles were preaching the gospel, the, the, that, that preaching attended the uh, calling to be baptized. Okay? And so when in the early church, when you became a Christian, you were looking for water to get baptized. Okay? And, and in that profession of your true repentance and faith, okay, which is the means by which God baptized you into the body of Christ, okay, you became united with all other Christians. You were them who were baptized as a Christian. Carlos? This probably refers to the water baptism following salvation of believers' public confession of faith in Jesus Christ. Spiritual baptism by which all believers are placed into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 through 13 is implied in verse 4. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, in my mind, and these terms are used differently in different texts in the New Testament. But the idea of baptism is used in the scripture many times as a synonym to describe salvation. And I, and thus I believe that this passage is one of those. We're basically saying that we, we all had one baptism. What is he referring to? Well, the, the true chief important baptism is the one that Terry refers to. The fact that we were baptized into the body of Christ by the Spirit of God. Okay? But our water baptism is us, our, our physical outward identification with Christ publicly as a member of his body. And I want to say, if you have not been baptized, I want to know what you are waiting for. Are you waiting for God to show up in the clouds and say you need to be baptized when in, in his word he's clearly commanded that we need to be baptized? Are, are you waiting for the right time when you think you're finally enlightened to the truth? If you have not been baptized, friend, you need to get baptized and you need to do it muy pronto. <laughs> and I don't, I, mean, I, don't, I don't mean to be so forceful about that except to say that, you know, if, you're not, if, you're, if you are a professing Christian and you have not been baptized, you are in disobedience to God's will for your life. And you need to identify publicly with Christ by being baptized. And that is the pattern in the teaching of Christ and the apostles. Amen? Daniel? I think also the emphasis in that, you know, of these verses is one. And baptism is that symbol and, and that profession of 
faith and repentance in Christ. And, Amen. And so I think the emphasis also there is that there is only one way of salvation. You know, I mean, he, he goes on in Galatians, if anyone preaches another gospel, let him be accursed. You mm-hmm. know? And and as such, so there is just, so what he's saying is that there, there is one body, there's only one means of becoming a member of this body. There's not some alternate path or door <coughs> towards salvation. Amen. Agreed. There's one means. You come by the way of Christ. And you come by the way of Christ by obedience to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Which is to come by repentance and faith. In which the first act of obedience is baptism. To identify publicly with the body of Christ. Amen? Okay then. He goes on, he says here, after all those ones, we're one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And here he says, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Okay? Christians have unity in the fact that we worship the one true and living God. Amen? And God is not two and he is not three, and he is not 837, right? He's one. There is one God, one God and Father of all. Here our Christian unity is illuminated in the object of our faith. We worship and serve the one true and living God, who alone is God, triune in nature, and Father to all who have been adopted into his family. This is in contrast to the Ephesians' former many gods whose attention would have been brought into disunity by many different objects of worship. You know, that's the thing about the heathens. They got so many different gods, no wonder they can't find any unity. Right? And one is the god of fertility, and one is the god of rain, and one is the god of this, and one is the god of that. And they're trying to appease so many gods, they, 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 they have no unity in their belief. They have no one common purpose of mind. The Ephesians were formerly these heathen. You know, just within uh, Ephesus alone, there were temples to many different gods. Right? And it's interesting that Paul points this out. I think it's, it's because of the background of the Ephesians. But he's saying, here, look, we Christians are not like Gentiles are normally. We have one God and one Father of us all. Amen? And then he furthermore describes a little bit about God who is over all and through all and in all. Now I want to point something out to you here. Many times in Scripture you're reading in the Bible and you read the word all. And you think the word all means every. And I want to tell you, here's a perfect example where the word all does not mean every in the general sense. Okay? How do we know that? Well, because he says that the one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, who is the all he's talking about? Christians. One God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Now, how do we know when he uses those terms that he's talking about Christians and not the rest of the world? Because, because isn't God over all? But he's he's not in all, is he? He's only in who? The Christians. So in this context, you see how the meaning of the context, direct context of a verse, brings out the meaning of what it is truly saying. You see that? Here's an important example of that. And I, I see this happen all the time in the New Testament. I see people quoting verses out of context and, and, and many times they have the word all in them, and they're trying to use that word out of context, or that verse out of context, to, to, to say something or defend a specific doctrine without finding that verse in its context of Scripture, which is where its meaning is derived from. Okay? And here's a good example of that. But uh, <clears throat> here we all have the same God, and we don't have disunity. We're worshiping the same God. The Christians have unity in that they all behold the one 
who is over all. In these descriptions of God, he says, God is over all. He's what? He's sovereign and supreme. And he is through all. What does that mean? What, what is he saying about God when he says God is through all? Well, he is om, omnipresent and providential. Okay? God is working out his purpose through his creation. Amen? And then he says, and in all, indwelling every Christian. God is in all Christians. He is indwelling every Christian. In fact, in chapter 2, he told us that we are now a dwelling where God lives by his spirit. Amen? We are the temple of God. And there in 2 Corinthians 6 again, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Amen? Christians have unity in the fact that we worship one God. Amen? Shall we pray? God our Father, Lord, we are thankful for um, the book of Ephesians. We're thankful, Lord, for this section that describes the unity that we have. Lord, I pray that you would give us strength together to keep that unity. Lord, that we would uh, press on to maturity and to know you and to know your Son. Pray, Father, that we would have strength to put the old man to death, that the new man might live, that we might walk in a manner worthy of our calling in true righteousness and holiness, God. Father, I pray that as we look at this section of the Bible, that it would transform us and that we would never be the same. Father, that we would commit these things to memory, that, they, that you would impress them indelibly upon our hearts and our minds, God. So, Lord, we do want to be like you. And as we worship you, Lord, and we ascribe worth to you and your character, God, we want to be humble and meek and patient and forbearing. Lord, we want to be like your son, Jesus. And so we ask for your help and your strength, O oh God. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us every resource in Christ to be like you. Lord, we honor you for your wonderful and awesome word. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.